homes with all the luxuries that a person could possibly dream about. Swimming pools, tennis courts, racquetball courts, the finest foods, the finest clothes, the most remarkable vehicles, private jets, yachts, amazing vacations anywhere in the world. Those seemed like some pretty nice rewards to me. So what in the world is Jesus talking about? The first part of this message, which I summarize for you as point one on your outline, if you, are, uh, if you like to keep notes, you'll find that in the middle of your bulletin. And it's this, God's grace of blessing is for those who identify with him. See, the woes show God's disfavor on those who oppose the blessing Jesus gives and who, and who persecute his disciples as a result. See, Jesus commits himself to those who truly follow him, those who are truly his disciples. God's true blessing rests on his disciples both, both now in the present age and throughout eternity. Blessed are the poor is just looking back at what Jesus had said back in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke. You see, the poor in this context are what are often referred to by scholars as the sincere poor. Those who are truly devoted to Jesus no matter what the cost. And the cost is often earthly comforts. And so point two is this. The poor are blessed because they have a position in the kingdom of God. They are poor because they realize how deeply they depend on Jesus. So how about you? Are you poor? You see, Jesus turns the values of this world on its head. Jesus understands full well the dangers of money, of comfort, and ease. See, we tend to only see the positive side of financial blessings. We don't want to see the extreme dangers that, bless, that financial blessing holds. Financial wealth and security tend to lead us to idolatry. The idolatry of self-sufficiency. The I don't need God, at least not in this area of my life. The idolatry of, Lord, you take care of this part of my life, my emotional life, whatever. And we turn to Jesus into kind of an emotional crutch. And we forget him in the other parts of life. Do I need him for my physical health? Well, I've, I've got insurance and good doctors for that. Do I need him for my daily needs? Well, I've got my job and my bank account. I've got my education and my degrees. Jesus, you take care of my ticket to heaven. I don't need you for the rest. It's so easy to fall for this. In chapter 18 of Luke, we, uh, we encounter the tragedy of the rich young ruler who wanted to follow Jesus. Do you remember that story? And Jesus' response seems very harsh to us, just as it was to his disciples. He said, go and sell everything you have, give it all away, then, then come and follow me. See, Jesus didn't put that requirement on other people, so why does he do that to that poor schmuck? Let me uh, give you the answer to that. Because he knew what had the firmest hold on that young man's heart. And you cannot have both God and money as rulers of your heart. 
until that young man could honestly face Jesus and say, here, take it all, take everything. It no longer has that kind of hold on me. He couldn't be Christ's disciple. So how about you? Can you honestly look Jesus in the face and say, I'm willing to give up every shred of everything in my bank account, everything I own, and give it away if you were to come and ask me to do that? See, if Jesus were to stand before you this morning and ask you to give up all the comforts of your life, how would you respond? That's what blessed are the poor means. Blessed are they because the idolatry of money no longer has a hold of them. Blessed are they because they are no longer enslaved to the idol of money and worldly comfort, but have learned to depend on Jesus and have by faith taken that radical step of trusting Him fully in those areas of life. So if you have a lot or a little, you can still be grasped by the idolatry of money. If you have it, you want more of it, and you want to protect it. If you don't have it, you're always lusting for it, always envious, always feeling sorry for yourself for not having more. Both always hungering for more of the God of our age. The God of money. The God of comfort and luxury and ease. See, Jesus tells us, he goes on, he doesn't stop here, and it's all brought together. Jesus tells us that Those that hunger now are blessed as well. See, they will receive satisfaction. The hunger that Jesus has in mind here is because of religious persecution and harsh treatment by people in power. Hunger is one of the consequences of poverty. A hungry person is a dependent person who doesn't have the earthly capacity to take care of their own needs. They are blessed because they have turned to God to take care of them. So how about you? Do you understand the depths of your need for God? Do you hunger deeply for Him? Do you hunger deeply for His Word and His truth? Do you eagerly hunger for your next opportunity to draw near to Him in prayer? If you answered yes, my life and everything I have are the Lord's and I would eagerly give it all away if He were to call to me to do so. If you hunger for Him and understand your spiritual poverty and hunger, then there will be a time, and there are times, as Jesus tells us here, when we laugh with joy and our tears turn to tears of joy. God sees their tears and their tears will become smiles. Disappointment and pain will turn into joy. And this is point three on your outline. Those who weep have paid the price of painful rejection for aligning their lives and their priorities up with God to the point that they know their utter poverty and complete hunger. They are only satisfied in Him. This is what it means to live the revolutionary lives of the poor and hungry who are completely and totally blessed because they truly understand what it means to be in daily, hourly, moment-by-moment dependent on their resurrected Savior. So how about you? Do you, hate, do you suffer hatred, insult, rejection, and exclusion for Jesus' sake? If not, why not? 
When was the last time you spoke the gospel in a place where it was likely to mean you'd experience some form of rejection? Let me just say that I believe that our world, our culture, yes, even here in America, is quickly becoming a world that was much more like Christ's. And Christ's message then was revolutionary to their ears. It wasn't common. In the last few years of my life, I've come to identify and think myself, uh, think of myself more differently than I used to. I used to, I have learned more deeply of my own utter poverty and hunger and dependency on Jesus. Today, I, I think I'm thinking more like those first century Christians, followers of the way, the truth, and the life. I stand for countercultural values, values of revolutionary love, revolutionary grace, revolutionary transformation, revolutionary healing, and mercy. Rest and peace in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus expects persecution and escalating negative reactions, and he expects that for his disciples. That is why he is telling them this. So point four on your outline is this. Our faith and convictions are not merely a private matter. See, for Jesus' disciples, a choice for Jesus meant the loss of family, rejection from the synagogue, Social shunning. They believed that they would be viewed as unclean to the Jewish leaders. Yet despite all that, they were told to rejoice because the blessings that they would receive from God. Blessed are you. Now, uh, if you're reading along here, I hope you noticed that rejoice is the only command in this entire section on blessing. Everything else is a promise. Think about that. We are commanded to rejoice because our eyes are open to all the blessings we have in Christ Jesus. This should be the real meaning of this season for us. See, the four woes provide us with a a contrast of those four blessings. So look at them with me again here. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. See, this last woe is the most revealing. Just like the false prophets in the Old Testament, they are spoken well of. So point five on your outline is this. They have settled for an approach to life that doesn't challenge them to live any differently. And they believe that God will not hold them accountable for that. They are on top of the world. The world has no problem with loving your friends, being loyal to them, looking out for them. Why? Because friends love you and are usually loyal and nice to you. Loving your friends is just smart, isn't it? There's nothing revolutionary or countercultural about loving those who love us. But love your enemy? Well, that's something completely different. Love someone who just wants to insult you, disgrace you, embarrass you, and maybe even hurt or kill you? 
Love your enemies, do good to them who hate you. The Greek here for enemy is ekthros, which indicates more of a, of a personal enemy, not just some philosophical possible enemy. It comes from the Greek ekthō to hate. And the Greek term for those who hate here is miseo, which means to hate or persecute or to detest or abhor. See, these people, they are people with an active desire for our hurt. Those who are actively working to harm you on some level. There's a malicious attitude intended here. And what does Jesus want us to do with them? He doesn't say, force a nice smile and avoid them as best you can. That's, uh, that's what I find happens in most churches. See, point six is this. We are to actively try to do good to those who are out to harm us. Agapeo, your enemies. Poimeo kalos, do good to those who hate you. And pray and intercede on their behalf. Look, this, none of this is in the passive voice. They are active verbs describing deliberate action to go out and do good to one's enemies. You see, here's the rub. The love Jesus commands isn't an abstract love tucked away in the inner resources of our hearts. And this is point seven. It is a love that demonstrates itself in concrete actions. The call is for disciples to do good to those who hate them and bless those who curse them and pray for those who abuse them. Jesus expects actions, not just private expressions to God, not just a passive assent, not just a, oh yeah, yeah, I love my enemies. In the very midst of active rejection and active bad treatment, Jesus expects people who follow him to act in revolutionary and extraordinary ways, trusting God in extraordinary ways. We are called to respond by reflecting Christ's love toward us by doing good, by blessing, which is uh, much more than just a flip kind of bless you. I I learned that in the South. Bless your heart means uh, get away from me. But it's an active being a blessing to those who oppose you and an active prayer life for those who oppose us. Disciples are called upon to reflect Christ's love constantly. Corey Ten Boom in the book Reflections of God's Glory wrote this. In Africa, a man came to a meeting with bandaged hands. I asked him how he had been injured. He said, my neighbor's straw roof was on fire. I helped him put it out, and that's how my hands were burned. Later, I heard the whole story. The neighbor hated him and set his roof on fire while his wife and children were asleep in this hut. They were in great danger. Fortunately, he was able to put out the fire in his house on time. But sparks had flown over to the roof of the man who had set the house on fire, and his house had started to burn. There was no hate in the heart of this Christian. There was love for his enemy, and he did everything he could to put out the fire in his neighbor's house. That is how his hands were burned. This is what it means to do good to those who oppose you. 
Now, Jesus is going to follow this command of how we are to live with some illustrations of what it's to look like. He says, turn the other cheek. And uh, point eight is this on your outline. In Christ's time a, and culture, a slap on the cheek was an insult. It's often interpreted in some circles as being a pacifist, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. A slap on the cheek here clearly means insult and rejection. And in fact, in Luke's context, this would point directly to the kind of insult and rejection that Jesus' Jewish disciples should expect from the Jewish religious authorities, and they got. We see this kind of rejection recorded in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. And we know that the early church consistently turned the other cheek. How? By continuing to share the gospel with those who rejected them. They always attempted to overcome evil with good. The next illustration that Jesus gives is about being vulnerable. Those who take your outer garment should also be allowed to have your undershirt. Let me uh, just begin by telling you what Jesus isn't saying. He's not saying that you should go out on the street and allow yourself to get robbed. It's not his point. Rather, this is what ministry looks like when you are being rejected. It requires being vulnerable and even experiencing economic hardship and isolation. As disciples, we're called to be active missionaries to all those around us. And in some contexts, that can mean being exposed to danger, especially economic danger. But that should never stop us from making all efforts to spread the gospel. It requires compassion and generosity, giving to those in need. And the final example that Jesus gives is this. If anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Two to others as, what you, as you would have them do to you. See, this had to do with uh, revenge and retribution for the wrongs done to you by someone else. Jesus doesn't want a disciple to pursue what has been taken from him. Paul put it similarly in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. He said, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do, do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul's point is point nine on your outline. That it is better to be defrauded than to bring criticism and shame on the name of Jesus. See, the priority is always love. Even when it regards those who are your enemies and are actively seeking to harm you. The priority is always the gospel of Jesus Christ. The priority is always the saving message of grace and love in Jesus Christ. The priority is always the vision we have here at Parkway of loving people to real life in Jesus. So let me ask you, who are your enemies? Who is seeking to impact you negatively, whether actual physical harm or harm to your reputation or to your financial situation? Who is your enemy? Are they people that are close to you who have been hurt in some way? Maybe it's a former spouse 
a son or a daughter, a co-worker, a neighbor, a parent, someone who has resisted the gospel and is taking it out on you. Now, what can you be doing actively to to, uh, show them the good? This is how Jesus wants us to think. How can I show them love and goodness in a tangible way? How do I love my enemy? I want you to take this admonition very seriously. I hope you will take time in prayer this week, asking the Lord how you can tangibly show love and goodness to someone who is your enemy. Ask the Lord how you might step out in faith, showing active love to those who are actively or maybe passively opposing you. Some years back, a woman wrote to Pulpit Helps to explain a miraculous lesson her family experienced during one of their family Bible readings as new Christians. See, they ran across the verse, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, from Romans chapter 12, verse 20. She uh, writes, our sons who were 7 and 10 at the time were especially puzzled. Why should you feed your enemy, they wondered. My husband and I wondered that too. But the only answer that my husband John could think to give the boys was, well, we're supposed to because God says so. It never occurred to us that God would soon show us why. Day after day, John Jr. came home from school complaining about a classmate who sat behind him in fifth grade. Bob keeps jabbing me when Miss Smith isn't looking. One of these days when we're out on the playground, I'm going to jab him back. Well, I was ready to go down to the school and jab Bob myself. Obviously, the boy was a brat. Besides, why wasn't Miss Smith doing a better job with her kids? I'd better give her an oral jab, too, at the same time. I was still fuming over this injustice to John Jr. when his seven-year-old brother spoke up. Maybe he should feed his enemy. The three of us were startled. None of us was sure about this enemy business. It didn't seem that an enemy would be in the fifth grade. An enemy was someone who was way off. Well, somewhere. We all looked at John since he was the head of the family. He should come up with the solution. But the only answer he could offer was the same one he'd given before. I guess we should because God said so. Well, I asked John Jr., do you know what Bob likes to eat? If you're going to feed him, you might as well give, get something he likes. Jelly beans, he almost shouted. Bob loves jelly beans. So we bought a bag of jelly beans for him to take to school the next day. <coughs> Excuse me. And decided that the next time Bob jabbed John Jr., John was simply to turn around and deposit the bag on his enemy's desk. We would see whether or not this... Uh, Enemy feeding worked. The next afternoon, the boys rushed home from the school bus, and John Jr. called ahead. It worked, Mom. It worked. Well, I wanted the details. What did Bob do? What did he say? He was so surprised he didn't say anything. He just took the jelly beans. But he didn't jab me the rest of the day. In time... John Jr. and Bob became best of friends, all because of a little bag of jelly beans. 
Both of our sons subsequently became missionaries on foreign fields. And their way of showing friendship with any enemies of the faith was to invite the inhabitants of those countries into their own homes to share food with them around their own table. It seems enemies are always hungry. Maybe that's why God said to feed them. Let's pray together. Loving Lord, your call upon us as your disciples is not an easy one. It's not one that we can handle on ourselves by ourselves. That is why we must depend on you every step of the way. It's not easy to show love and kindness to those who are actively opposing us. It is not easy to be gentle with those who are being harsh. It is not easy to love those who do not love us. That is hard. That is why we need your Holy Spirit to strengthen us for the task of the calling that you have given us, the mission that you have given us to love others, even those who oppose us, those we do not know, those who maybe do not like us. Thank you, Lord, for your message, and thank you that you do not leave us alone to do what you have called upon us to do as your followers. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.